0: Chapter 7 of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter 7 Dernmelling. In the autumn, Mr. Mortimer of Dernmelling resolved to give a harvest home to his tenants and under the protection of the occasion to invite also a good many of his neighbours and of the townsfolk of testbridge whom he could not well ask to dinner there happened to be a political expediency for something of the sort america is not the only country in which ambition opens the door to mean doings on the part of such as count themselves gentlemen not a few on whom lady margaret had never called and whom she would never in any way acknowledge again were invited nor did the knowledge of what it meant cause many of them to decline the questionable honour which fact carried in it the best justification of which the meanness and insult were capable mrs warder accepted for herself and letty but in their case lady margaret did call and in person give the invitation godfrey positively refused to accompany them he would not be patronized he said and by an inferior he added to himself mr mortimer was the illiterate son of a literary father who had reaped both money and fame the son spent the former on the strength of the latter married an earl's daughter and thereupon began to embody in his own behaviour his ideas of how a nobleman ought to carry himself whence, from being only a small, he became an objectionable man, and failed of being amusing by making himself offensive. He had never manifested the least approach to neighborliness with Godfrey, although their houses were almost within a stone's throw of each other. Had Warder been an ordinary farmer, of whose presuming on the acquaintance there could have been no danger, Mortimer would doubtless have behaved differently, but as Warder had some pretensions, namely old family a small though indeed very small property of his own a university education good horses and the habits and manners of a gentleman the men scarcely even saluted when they met the mortimer ladies indeed had more than once remarked but it was in solemn silence each to herself only how well the man sat and how easily he handled the hunter he always rode but not once until now had so much as a greeting passed between them and Mrs. Warder. It was not therefore wonderful that Godfrey should not choose to accept their invitation. Finding, however, that his mother was distressed at having to go to the gathering without him, and far more exercised in her mind than was needful as to what would be thought of his absence, and what excuse it would be becoming to make, he resolved to go to London a day or two before the event, and pay a long-promised visit to a clerical friend. The relative situation of the houses, I mean the stone and lime houses, of Dunmelling and Thornwick was curious, and that they had at one time formed part of the same property might have suggested itself to any beholder. Dunmelling was built by an ancestor of Godfrey's, who, forsaking the old nest for the new, had allowed Thornwick to sink into a mere farmhouse, in which condition it had afterward become the sole shelter of the withered fortunes of the warders. In the hands of Godfrey's father, by a continuity of judicious cares and a succession of partial resurrections, it had been restored to something like its original modest dignity. Durnmelling, too, had in part sunk into ruin, and had been but partially recovered from it. Still it swelled important beside its antecedent, Thornwick. Nothing but a deep ha-ha separated the two houses, of which the older and smaller occupied the higher ground. Between it and the ha-ha was nothing but grass. In front of the house, fine enough and well enough kept to be called lawn, had not Godfrey's pride refused the word. On the lower, the Durnmelling side of the fence, were trees, shrubbery, and outhouses, the chimney of one of which, the laundry, gave great offence to Mrs. Warder, when, as she said, wind and wash came together. But, although they stood so near, there was no lawful means of communication between the houses except the road, and the mile that implied was seldom indeed passed by any of the unneighborly neighbours. The father of Lady Margaret would at one time have purchased Thornwick at twice its value, but the present owner could not have bought it at half its worth. He had of late been losing money heavily, whence in part arose that anxiety of Lady Margaret's not to keep Mr. Redman fretting for his lunch. The house of Dernmelling, now compared with that of Thornwick, was yet, as I have indicated, old enough to have passed also through vicissitudes, and a large portion of the original structure had for many years been nothing better than a ruin. Only a portion of one side of its huge square was occupied by the family, and the rest of that side was not habitable. Lady Margaret, of an ancient stock, had gathered from it only pride, not reverence therefore, while she valued the old, she neglected it, and what money she and her husband at one time spent upon the house was devoted to addition and ornamentation, nowise to preservation or restoration. They had enlarged both dining-room and drawing-rooms to twice their former size, when half the expense, with a few trees from a certain outlying oak plantation of their own, would have given them a room fit for a regal assembly." for constituting a portion of the same front in which they lived lay roofless open to every wind that blew its paved floor now and then in winter covered with snow an ancient hall whose massy south wall was pierced by three lovely windows narrow and lofty with simple gracious tracery in their pointed heads This hall connected the habitable portion of the house with another part, less ruinous than itself, but containing only a few rooms in occasional use for household purposes, or, upon necessity, for quite inferior lodgment. It was a glorious ruin of nearly a hundred feet in length, and about half that in width, its walls entire, and broad enough to walk round upon in safety. Their top was accessible from a tower, which formed part of the less ruinous portion, and contained the stair and some small rooms. Once the hall was fair, with portraits and armor and arms, with fire and lights, and state and merriment. Now the sculptured chimney lay open to the weather, and the sweeping winds had made its smooth hearthstone clean as if fire had never been there. Its floor was covered with large flags, a little broken, these, in prospect of the coming entertainment, a few workmen were levelling, patching, replacing. For the tables were to be set there, and here there was to be dancing after the meal. It was Miss Yoland's idea, and to her was committed the responsibility of its preparation and adornment for the occasion in which Hesper gave her active assistance with coloured blankets, with carpets, with a few pieces of old tapestry, and a quantity of old curtains, mostly of chins, excellent in hues and design, all cunningly arranged for as much of harmony as could be had, they contrived to clothe the walls to the height of six or eight feet, and so give the weather-beaten skeleton an air of hospitable preparation and respectful reception. The day and the hour arrived— it was a hot autumnal afternoon. Born in all sorts of vehicles, from a carriage and pair to a taxed cart, the guests kept coming. As they came, they mostly scattered about the place. Some loitered on the lawn by the flower-beds in the fountain, some visited the stables and the home farm, with its cow-houses and dairy and piggeries, some the neglected greenhouses, and some the equally neglected old-fashioned alleys, with their clipped yews and their moss-grown statues. No one belonging to the house was anywhere visible to receive them, until the great bell at length summoned them to the plentiful meal spread in the ruined hall. "'The hospitality of some people has no roof to it,' Godfrey said, when he heard of the preparations. Ten people will give you a dinner, for one who will offer you a bed and a breakfast.' Then at last their host made his appearance, and took the head of the table. The ladies, he said, were to have the honour of joining the company afterward. They were at the time, but this he did not say, giving another stratum of society a less ponderous, but yet tolerably substantial, refreshment in the dining-room. By the time the eating and drinking were nearly over, the shades of evening had gathered, but even then some few of the farmers capable only of drinking grumbled at having their potations interrupted for the dancers these were presently joined by the company from the house and the great hall was crowded much to her chagrin mrs warder had a severe headache occasioned by her working half the night at her dress and was compelled to remain at home but she allowed letty to go without her which she would not have done had she not been so anxious to have news of what she could not lift her head to see. She sent her with an old servant, herself one of the invited guests, to gather and report. The dancing had begun before they reached the hall. Tom Helmer had arrived among the first, and had joined the tenants in their feast, faring well and making friends such as he knew how to make, with everybody in his vicinity when the tables were removed and the rest of the company began to come in he went about searching anxiously for letty's sweet face but it did not appear and when she did arrive she stole in without his seeing her and stood mingled with the crowd about the door it was a pleasant sight that met her eyes The wide space was gaily illuminated with colored lamps, disposed on every shelf and in every crevice of the walls, some of them gleaming like glow-worms out of mere holes, while candles in sconces and lamps on the window-sills, and wherever they could stand, gave a light the more pleasing that it was not brilliant. Overhead, the night sky was spangled with clear pulsing stars, afloat in a limpid blue, vast even to awfulness in the eyes of such, were any such there? As say to themselves that to those worlds also were they born. Outside, it was dark, save where the light streamed from the great windows far into the night. The moon was not yet up. She would rise in good time to see the scattering guests to their homes. Tom's heart had been sinking, for he could see Letty nowhere. Now, at last, he had been saying to himself all the day, had come his chance and his chance seemed but to mock him. More than any girl he had ever seen had Letty moved him, perhaps because she was more unlike his mother. He knew nothing, it is true, or next to nothing, of her nature, but that was of little consequence to one who knew nothing, and never troubled himself to know anything of his own. Was he doomed never to come near his idol?" ah there she was yes it was she all but lost in a humble group near the door his foolish heart not foolish in that gave a great bound as if it would leap to her where she stood she was dressed in white muslin from which her white throat rose warm and soft her head was bent forward and a gentle dissolved smile was all over her face as with loveliest eyes she watched eagerly the motions of the dance and her ears drank in the music of the yeomanry band. He seized the first opportunity of getting nearer to her. He had scarcely spoken to her before, but that did not trouble Tom. Even in a more ceremonious assembly that would never have abashed him, and here there was little form and much freedom. He had, besides, confidence in his own carriage and manners, which indeed were those of a gentleman and knew himself not likely to repel by his approach. Mr. Mortimer had opened the dancing by leading out the wife of his principal tenant, a handsome matron whose behavior and expression were such as to give a safe, homelike feeling to the shy and doubtful of the company. But Tom knew better than injure his chance by precipitation. He would wait until the dancing was more general, and the impulse to movement stronger, and then offer himself he stood therefore near letty for some little time talking to everybody and making himself agreeable as was his wont all round then at last as if he had just caught sight of her walked up to her where she stood flushed and eager and asked her to favour him with her hand in the next dance by this time letty had got familiar with his presence had recalled her former meeting with him had heard his name spoken by not a few who evidently liked him, and was quite pleased when he asked her to dance with him. In the dance nothing but commonplaces passed between them, but Tom had a certain pleasant way of his own in saying the commonest, emptiest things—an off-hand, glancing, skimming, swallow-like way of brushing and leaving a thing, as if he could and if he would, which made it seem for the moment as if he had said something Were his companion capable of discovering the illusion, there was no time. Tom was instantly away, carrying him or her with him to something else. But there was better than this. There was poetry, more than one element of it, in Tom. In the presence of a girl that pleased him, there would rise in him a poetic atmosphere, full of a rainbow kind of glamour, which, first possessing himself, passed out from him and called up a similar atmosphere a similar glamour about many of the girls he talked to this he could no more help than the grass can help smelling sweet after the rain tom was a finely projected well-built unfinished barely furnished house with its great central room empty where the devil coming and going at his pleasure had not yet begun to make any great racket there might be endless embryonic evil in him but Letty was aware of no repellent atmosphere about him, and did not shrink from his advances. He pleased her, and why should she not be pleased with him? Was it a fault to be easily pleased? The truer and sweeter any human self, the readier it is to be pleased with another self, save indeed something in it great on the moral sense, that jars through the whole harmonious hypostasy." To Tom, therefore, Letty responded with smiles and pleasant words, even grateful to such a fine youth for taking notice of her small self. The sun had set in a bank of cloud, which, as if he had been a lump of leaven to it, immediately began to swell and rise, and now hung dark and thick over the still warm night. Even the farmers were unobservant of the change, their crops were all in they had eaten and drunk heartily and were merry looking on or sharing in the multiform movement their eyes filled with light and colour suddenly came a torrent sound in the air heard of few and heated by none and straight into the hall rushed upon the gay company a deluge of rain mingled with large half-melted hailstones in a moment or two scarce a light was left burning except those in the holes and recesses of the walls the merrymakers scattered like flies into the house into the tower into the sheds and stables in the court behind under the trees in front anywhere out of the hall where shelter was none from the perpendicular abandoned downpour at that moment letty was dancing with tom and her hand happened to be in his he clasped it tight and, as quickly as the crowd and the confusion of shelter-seeking would permit, led her to the door of the tower already mentioned. But many had run in the same direction, and already its lower story and stair were crowded with refugees, the elder bemoaning the sudden change, and folding tight around them what poor wraps they were fortunate enough to have retained the younger merrier than ever, notwithstanding the cold gusts that now poked their spirit-arms higher and thither through the openings of the half-ruinous building. To them even the destruction of their finery was but added cause of laughter. But a few minutes more its freshness had been a keen pleasure to them, brightening their consciousness with a rare feeling of perfection. Now crushed and rumpled, soiled and wet and torn, it was still fuel to the fire of gaiety. But Tom did not stay among them. He knew the place well. Having a turn for scrambling, he had been all over it many a time. On through the crowd, he led Letty up the stair to the first floor. Even here were a few couples talking and laughing in the dark. With a warning, by no means unnecessary, to mind where they stepped, for the floors were bad, he passed on to the next stair let us stop here mr helmer said letty there is plenty of room here i want to show you something answered tom you need not be frightened i know every nook of the place i am not frightened said letty and made no further objection at the top of that stair they entered a straight passage in the middle of which was a faint glimmer of light from an oval aperture in the side of it thither Tom led Letty and told her to look through. She did so. Beneath lay the great gulf wide and deep of the hall they had just left. This was the little window high in its gable, through which, in faraway times, the lord or lady of the mansion could oversee at will whatever went on below. The rain had ceased as suddenly as it came on, and already lights were moving about in the darkness of the abyss, One and another and another was searching for something lost in the hurry of the scattering. It was a waste and dismal show. Neither of them had read Dante, but Letty may have thought of the hall of Belshazzar the night after the hand-haunted revel, when the Medes had had their will, for she had but lately read the story. A strange fear came upon her, and she drew back with a shudder. "'Are you cold?' said Tom, "'Of course you must be, with nothing but that thin muslin. Shall I run down and get you a shawl?' "'Oh, no, do not leave me, please. It's not that,' answered Letty. "'I don't mind the wind a bit. It's rather pleasant. It's only that the look of the place makes me miserable, I think. It looks as if no one had danced there for a hundred years.' "'Neither any one has, I suppose, till to-night,' said Tom, "'What a fine place it would be if only it had a roof to it. "'I can't think how anyone can live beside it and leave it like that.' "'But Tom lived a good deal closer to a worse ruin, "'and never spent a thought on it.' "'Letty shivered again. "'I'm quite ashamed of myself,' she said, trying to speak cheerfully. "'I can't think why I should feel like this, "'just as if something dreadful were watching me. "'I'll go home, Mr. Helmer.' "'It will be much the safest thing to do. I fear you have indeed caught cold,' replied Tom, rejoiced at the chance of accompanying her. "'I shall be delighted to see you safe.' "'There is not the least occasion for that, thank you,' answered Letty. "'I have an old servant of my aunt's with me, somewhere about the place. The storm is quite over now, and I will go find her.' Tom made no objection, but helped her down the back stair, hoping, however, the servant might not be found. As they went, Letty seemed to herself to be walking in some old dream of change and desertion. The tower was empty as a monument, not a trace of the crowd left, which a few minutes before had thronged it. The wind had risen in earnest now, and was rushing about, like a cold wild ghost, through every cranny of the desolate place had letty when she reached the bottom of the stairs found herself on the rocks of the seashore with the waves dashing up against them she would only have said to herself i knew i was in a dream but the wind having blown away the hail-cloud the stars were again shining down into the hall one or two forlorn-looking searchers were still there the rest had scattered like the gnats A few were already at home. Some were harnessing their horses to go, nor would wait for the man in the moon to light his lantern. Some were already trudging on foot through the dark. Hesper and Miss Yoland were talking to two or three friends in the drawing-room. Lady Margaret was in her boudoir, and Mr. Mortimer smoking a cigar in his study. Nowhere could Letty find Susan. She was in the farmer's kitchen behind— Tom suspected as much, but was far from hinting the possibility. Letty found her cloak, which she had left in the hall, soaked with rain, and thought it prudent to go home at once, nor prosecute her search for Susan further. She accepted, therefore, Tom's renewed offer of his company. They were just leaving the hall when a thought came to Letty the moon suddenly appearing above the horizon had put it in her head. Oh! she cried i know quite a short way home and without waiting any response from her companion she turned and led him in an opposite direction round namely by the back of the court into a field there she made for a huge oak which gloomed in the moonlight by the sunk fence parting the grounds in the slow strength of its growth by the rounding of its bowl and by the spreading of its roots it had so rent and crumbled the wall as to make through it a little ravine Leading to the top of the ha ha, when they reached it, before Tom even saw it, Letty turned from him and was up in a moment. At the top, she turned to bid him good night, but there he was, close behind her, insisting on seeing her safe to the house. "Is this the way you always come?" asked Tom. "I never was on Durnmelling land before," answered Letty. "How did you find the shortcut?" then he asked. "'It certainly does not look as if it were much used.' "'Of course not,' replied Letty. "'There is no communication between Dern and Thornwick now. "'It was all ours once, though,' Cousin Godfrey says. "'Did you notice how the great oak spreads its biggest arm over our field?' "'Yes.' "'Well, I often sit there under it when I want to learn my lesson and can't rest in the house. "'And that's how I know of the crack in the ha-ha.' She said it in absolute innocence, but Tom laid it up in his mind. Are you at lessons still? he said. Have you a governess? No, she answered in a tone of amusement, but cousin Godfrey teaches me many things. This made Tom thoughtful, and little more had been said when they reached the gate of the yard behind the house, and she would not let him go a step farther. End of chapter 7 Durnmelling.